In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The scene in our gospel reading is incredible. If we weren't so familiar with it, we'd maybe even call it absurd. It's one thing, right, for Paul to rebuke Peter to his face, which we hear about in Galatians. But for Peter to rebuke Jesus to his face, to pull him aside and rebuke the Son of God, that is something else entirely. Let me help set the scene for you in the Gospel of Mark. So far, Jesus has been silent about his overall plan, particularly about his plans, what will happen when he arrives in Jerusalem. Jesus has been healing people. He's been teaching in parables and proclaiming the kingdom of God. And most people seem to have understood what he meant by that kingdom language. Not as he intended it, but as they wanted to hear it. So he's walking around saying the kingdom of God is at hand and people hear him saying what they want to hear. They wanted Jesus to come to Jerusalem and by the power of God and the might of the sword to defeat the wicked pagans and purge them from the land. But Jesus had other plans. As of yet, though, He's been silent. He hasn't been clear about what those plans are. But now we come to what's known as the way section of Mark's gospel. Mark begins his gospel by quoting Isaiah chapter 40 and identifying John the Baptist as the one who prepares the way of the Lord. And now we come to chapter 8, starting in verse 27. And Jesus is on the way. For the next three chapters, this language of way, hadas, is going to occur over and over and over again. The first thing that happens in this way section of Mark's gospel is that Jesus asks, asks his disciples a question. He says, who do people say that I am? We get a theme for what's going to be happening in this section, this sort of Um, we get an idea of the theme that's going to be taking place or unfolding before us. Who do people say that I am? Then he asks, but who do you? Who do you say that I am? This is is the more important question, right? Not what, what do people say that I am, but who do you say that I am? The only answer recorded in Mark's gospel is that of Peter. He says, you are the Messiah. You are the Christ. This event, this moment when Peter recognizes who Jesus is, or at least partially recognizes who Jesus is, is so important in the life of the Gospels, important in the story of the Gospels, that it has its own feast day. The Anglican Church celebrates the Confession of Peter the Apostle on January 18th. And that is a day that's significant to me, not just because of what Peter says, but because it's a day on which I was ordained as a priest, on the Confession of St. Peter. Given this fact that my ordination date is forever tied up with the Confession of St. Peter, it is, frankly, a bit disconcerting to read what happens immediately after this. 
Peter recognizes that Jesus is the Messiah, a term for Peter, it's a term which for Peter meant likely something like military conqueror, military king. And while Jesus seems to affirm that this is the right term, he immediately fills the term Messiah with new meaning by interpreting Messiah by what it means to be the Son of Man. He says, And he began to teach them, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. In the next verse, Mark says that John told them this plainly in contrast to the symbolic miracles Jesus had been performing and in contrast to the riddle-like parables with which Jesus had been teaching. Now, he talks to the people, he talks to his disciples plainly and openly. He says, in effect, this is what it means to be the Messiah. This is what's going to happen when I come to Jerusalem. Here's the plan. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to be killed. And then I'm going to rise again. This, for us, is obvious. We've been taught that this is what the Messiah is supposed to do since we were little, little ones. This is part of the creed that we confess every Sunday, but not so for Peter, not so for those in the first century. And so Peter does the unthinkable. He takes Jesus aside. Perhaps my favorite part of this story is that, Jesus, is that Peter doesn't just correct Jesus or try to correct Jesus, but he pulls him aside first. Because, I mean, as we all know, if you're going to correct the Son of God, you don't do it in public. <laughs> you take him aside. You correct him when, you know, when no one could hear what you're saying. So Peter takes Jesus aside and begins to rebuke him. Can you imagine it? Can you picture that scene? Can you visualize Peter rebuking Jesus for saying that he was going to suffer, die, and rise again? In my head, when I try to picture it, it's, it's almost comical. It, uh, you know, it feels, like, it feels like one of those moments when your, your kids decide that they know better than you and come to inform you of something. Uh, and you're just like, yeah, I, I, I know. And you tap their heads and you smile at them and give them kisses and then just send them on their way. And that's kind of what it feels like. I can't picture someone telling Jesus that they know better than he does what it means to be the Messiah. I can't picture someone telling Jesus that they know better than he does what the Messiah is supposed to do. And yet I wonder... How often we might do the same thing without realizing. Now there's a caveat here. Our Father wants us to bring all of our thoughts and desires to Him in, in prayer and confession. He wants us to plead with Him in prayer even when the answer is silent. But that's not what I have in mind. What I have in mind is this sort of idea that who defines the terms 
in our relationship with Jesus? Who's the one who decides what it means to be the Messiah? Who's the one who decides what it means to be the Messiah's disciple? Jesus says that his path will lead him to the cross, and then he immediately, immediately calls his own disciples to walk that same path. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. None of us today would dare question Jesus about what it means to be the Messiah. We know that the Messiah was called to walk the way of the cross, but what about what it means to be the Messiah's disciple? We know, right, we have the knowledge because we've read our Bibles and we've heard the sermons. We know that the Messiah's disciples are supposed to take up their cross and follow him. We know that the way of the Lord is the way of the cross. And yet, and I'm speaking for myself here, it seems more often than not, rather than walking on the way of the cross with our Lord, I find myself taking Jesus aside and saying, well, yes, Lord, I get that, I do, but... Can't I still be your disciple on this other path? It sure looks easier. It's a lot more comfortable. And you know, it doesn't involve any of that dying to self. But can I I just walk this path and you walk that path and we'll meet somewhere at the end? When I think that I know what's best for my life better than my Lord... When I think that I know what it means to be his disciple better than my Lord. When I think that maybe I'm not called to a cruciform life. When I make decisions that suggest I don't think I'm called to a life that embodies the death of Jesus Christ. I'm acting like Peter. I'm pulling Jesus aside and saying, no, Jesus, I think I know better than you about what I'm supposed to do with my life and how I'm supposed to be your disciple. And Jesus says back to me, you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. It is certainly not our instinct to live sacrificial lives. It is not our natural instinct to love our neighbors as ourselves. It is not our natural instinct to consider others as more important than ourselves. But this is exactly the kind of life to which Jesus calls his disciples. This is exactly the kind of life to which Jesus is calling all of us. And the beauty of the story, the beauty of this call that Jesus places on our lives, is that we can walk this path. We can take up our cross and follow him. 
For the same reason that Jesus could set his face towards Jerusalem. For the same reason that Abraham could sacrifice his son. Because we believe in the never-ending, never-failing love of God. Notice what Jesus says. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die And I'm going to rise again. He knows that God will not abandon his Holy One to the grave. He knows that God will not forsake him. He knows that God will not leave him in the depths of death. Because God's love is never ending and God's love is never failing. God calls us to a life of sacrificial love now. He calls us to take up our cross and follow Jesus now because He knows that there is nothing in this world that can separate us from His love. Paul asks in Romans 8, Who then shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation. Paul has literally run out of words. will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul's point is And this is the point he's been making all through Romans 8. Is that because of the current state of the world, ever since the Garden of Eden, the disciples of Jesus Christ are called to enter into the suffering and futility of creation. To bear our cross and go there. Bring with us the Spirit of the living God. And there in the midst of the world's pain and hurt, to cry out to our Heavenly Father that His kingdom would come. And we can do that. What gets us from there to the promised land. What gets us from suffering to celebration. From pain to pleasure. From dying with Christ to eternal resurrected life with Christ. Is simply the never ending, never failing love of God. That's Paul's point. You can go into the depths of the world's suffering. You can go into the depths of the world's pain and cry out for the kingdom of God to come because no matter what happens to you there, God's love will never let you go. God will not let death be the end of you. Nothing in this world, nothing can separate you from God's never-ending, never-failing, world-changing, resurrecting, Love. And so we need to stop listening to ourselves and self help gurus and talking heads on TV about what we want out of this life. And we need to listen closely to Jesus. 
In the same way that Peter did not get to define what it means to be the Messiah, we do not get to define what it means to be Jesus' disciple. He does. And he calls us to take up our cross and follow him wherever he leads, even to death. Because even death cannot separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen. Let us confess our